Hello and welcome to the FT Advisor podcast, the weekly podcast series brought to you by FT Advisor. Each week, we'll be joined by guests from the industry to discuss the weekend news and the most pressing issues of the day. I'm David Thorpe, Special Projects Editor at FT Advisor and Financial Advisor. This episode of the podcast looks at the opportunities in the UK market as the first signs emerge of the economy exiting its induced slumber. Joining me today to examine the outlook for the UK market in an uncertain world are Andrew Bell, Chief Executive of the Witan Investment Trust, Sunil Krishnan, Head of Multi-Asset Funds at Aviva Investors, and Jamie Ward, UK Equity Fund Manager at Crooks Asset Management. A particular feature of the UK equity market since March has been the relatively better performance of growth equities relative to value. Andrew Bell, is this a trend that you think is likely to continue? The outperformance of growth over value has persisted for quite a number of years, uh, partly because of technology disrupting the business models of a lot of old economy companies and partly because of the weakness of economic growth. So many cyclical companies really haven't had a decent revival to prosper in. But 2020 has been really extraordinary because the first month and a half of the year was quite a bullish environment and the growth stocks outperformed. They then outperformed during the collapse of markets and they've collapsed and they've they've outperformed during the rally from the bottom. So it's been quite unusual. And I think there's a good explanation and there's and there's a potential warning there. The good explanation is that the enforced isolation, which is how we're trying to cope with the COVID virus, has been a, if you like, an exogenous shock, which has favoured many of the growth stocks in the market, the technology sure. companies, where you know all become have become more dependent upon, and it's also put a premium on the sort of Unilever, Diageo stocks that are per- perceived as being relatively defensive and predictable demand, which were also highly rated. So they've had, if you like, a good leg up while all of the rest of the market, which was waiting for 2020 to be a better year, the more cyclical companies have had that expectation of recovery either deferred or put it put into severe reverse. And as a result, we've seen a, a, not just a continuation, but a widening of the spread between growth stock valuations and value. Now, I think looking forward, it's not going to be so much one versus the other. People are going to look sector by sector. There are some sectors that will revive from this. I personally think the financials, the banking sector will still be needed and their business model hasn't been destroyed by this. A lot of bricks and mortar retailers will find life harder. Many technology companies will find life easier. So really, it's going to be an issue of of relative value. And, And the relative value has now become much more of a question for growth stocks relative to value. So five or 10 year view, I still want to see growth in my portfolio. But one or two year view, I think some of the cyclical influences probably favor some of the the value stocks. Yes, and as you say, it's been an important structural theme really since the very early part of the recovery from the uh, financial crisis. So over a decade now, and not just a UK story, but a, but a global theme uh, as well. And I suppose you could say it uh, has reflected in the past and I think continues to reflect a, a sort of lingering scepticism from investors that as high as equity markets might rise, they, they can't quite believe it. And therefore, are more inclined to favour the companies where they, they feel that they have some visibility on why the company should deliver growth in the future and 
uh, and expand its footprint. And as, as Andrew says, there is a pricing question that has, I think, been raised repeatedly over the last five years. But maybe we are finally starting to, to reach the stage where that question has to be asked more seriously. I mean, from our perspective, partly through the way we access uh, global investments, we probably tended to have more investments, let's say, in the US than others. But but very much playing the same theme, which is the performance of growthier stocks, particularly in the case of the US tech, but in, in the UK, it might be some of the more defensive sectors. Uh, playing those growthier themes has been a very successful strategy, but I think we are starting to reach the stage where we need to question that. Now, we had a bit of a full start there. If I think back to the start of the year, actually, as we moved away from the US-China trade issues and what had really been a global manufacturing recession for 12, 18 months, it did feel as though that might be the right time for cyclical, more value uh, companies, particularly those geared into a fixed investment, would be favoured. And then obviously we got the un unwelcome surprise of the coronavirus. And I think it has postponed that. But if anything, it seems to have blown out the valuation distinction even further. So with some caution about being too early on this, which maybe ties into views about the outlook for the equity market in general, I do feel that there is more of a valuation headwind now to growth companies than there has been uh, really for any of the rally of the last 10 years. Thank you, Sunil. Um, Jamie, I, d I don't know how you how your uh, fund is, is positioned, but I suppose it's something the UK market has always had in its favour, is that if you really want to, you can hunker down in some of those bond proxies, as they're often called, growth companies uh, in tobacco, in, in big pharma, in uh, Unilever or Diageo, etc. One can hunker down in those and wait for all the fuss to be over. But is that the approach you're taking right now? Uh, no, not really. I think we need to break it down from just simply saying growth has done better than value. I think you've kind of alluded to it when you talk about bond proxies. It's actually the businesses that the market has assessed as being high quality that have done very best. So these are businesses that have consistently delivered over year after year for quite a long period of time. What's happened in the market over the last 10 to 12 years? In the fixed income market, we've seen a decline in yields across the board. So those businesses that are considered quality by the market have had the time into the future where people are willing to make a value assessment pushed further and further out, which has effectively made quality or growth businesses a higher duration asset in a time of declining interest rate yields. Where we need to decide whether we think value is going to have its time, I think as much as anything hinges on whether what we think will happen to interest rates in the future. And I think that we'll probably get onto that when we talk about inflation later on. Thank you. And Jamie, to, to continue the theme, um, the UK market has always been known really as a, as a favourite haunt of the income investor. But dividend cuts are everywhere. Shell cut their dividend for the first time since the Second World War. What impact does that have on the UK equity market as a whole? Uh, does it make the entire market less attractive, even for those investors who are not income investors? I don't think it does. It's not like the dividend cuts are just a UK phenomenon. They do appear to be largely a global phenomenon. You mentioned Rod Shell, which, which is the case of a business where it's a UK business that's cut and actually its international equivalents haven't. But there are lots of cases where UK businesses have cut and international businesses have also cut. So on a relative position, it doesn't. I don't think it really changes the picture for the UK as a say, non-UK international investor. Thank you. Sunil, what's your view on that? I don't know if the products you, you look after at Aviva Investors have, a, have an income focus, but does the reputation of the UK be damaged by dividend cuts and does that matter to you as an investor and on a total return basis? 
I think in the near term, actually, I'm perhaps not as sanguine. I think it does matter a bit. And, and one of the reasons for that is uh, I do think that the level of yields that have been available in the UK market for international investors have made them hard to ignore for long periods of time. And it is why sometimes in the past you've seen periods of UK underperformance. And let's face it, there have been quite a few over the last uh, 10 years. Sometimes be reversed quite violently for a period as, as perhaps yields just become too attractive. Now, I think in that sense, that has been what has brought investors internationally uh, and indeed at home, as you mentioned, to uh, to focus on uh, the UK, particularly if they've ignored it for a while. And I think that is much more challenging now. And I, I do think that it's to the extent it's been a stronger part of the investment thesis up to now, taking that away, even if you just see the same level of dividend cuts for UK companies as elsewhere, I think would be a bit of an issue. Having said that, I think there is also a question of whether payout policies for UK companies have slightly defied gravity. And in that sense, perhaps the you know payout ratios have become overextended in any case. And, and therefore, they're, they're potentially... You know, when we get to the end of this process, we may see that dividends have been cut a bit more aggressively in the UK than elsewhere. And again, I think that is something of a headwind. Now, having said all of that, as you can probably tell, I'm a bit of a critic of these more aggressive kind of long term payout policies for UK companies. I think it has come at the cost of resilience. I think it's come at the cost of investment. And so you could actually see a path here where if you are going to rebase investor expectations back to a what I regard as a more sustainable level of dividends, there's probably never been a better time to do it. So we could be looking in the longer term at a kind of reset that allows companies to have a more grown up conversation with investors about what can be reasonably expected in terms of payouts. And that in turn might set UK companies up for a bit of long term future. I'm afraid I just don't think we're there yet. Thank you. Andrew, one of the features of uh, the investment first universe is for many investors is the dividend income that that one can achieve. I believe, although correct me if I'm wrong, Witan has increased its dividend for over 40 years consecutively. So obviously income is something that matters to your uh, client base. Given that context, what do dividend cuts in, in the UK mean mean for you, for Witan, and for how you allocate capital? Well, yeah, yeah, 45 years we've increased our dividend for on, on the back of, over the long term, fundamentally growth in the portfolio dividend that we're invested in. I, I think what's happened very recently in the UK has forced people to face up to the fact that a lot of relatively high dividends in the UK were pretty high were, hadn't hadn't grown for 10 years. And, and that was at one end of the spectrum, something like Glaxo, which is a fairly defensive stock. At the other end of the spectrum, things like the oil companies. And so we had this very high yield, which has turned out to be not sustainable in a crisis, but also very low growth. And, and one of the things, one of the reasons we've increased our allocation to overseas markets over the long term is apart from overseas markets having become better quality or, or more of them have become better quality, there's also a source you get lower yields but faster dividend growth. And so even when you get a hit like this year where probably half of the dividends in the UK are going to disappear, almost however your portfolio is, is invested, one of the advantages that you alluded to for investment trust is you can squirrel away part of your revenue in good time so that you can support the dividend in poor time. And, and we've recently announced that we are willing to use our revenue reserves to continue our 45-year record on dividends. But in the long term, the dividend that we pay out is going to be driven by the dividends that we receive. And I I think when people come back to the UK market, and and I think 
in an international view, it looks pretty attractive value at the moment, despite the rather iffy sector mix. They're going to be very selective. They're going to be looking for which dividends have disappeared but might come back, such as banks, for example, will probably come back. There's a lot of retailers. And which, like the oils, perhaps you really have to assess that Royal Dutch Shell's never going to get back to paying the dividend it used to pay. I, that's not my forecast, but I, I think people are going sure. to be quite selective. They're going to look for where is the fundamental support for the dividend, and dividend is really part of the total return rather than the whole caboodle. Thank you. Sunil, one of the reasons why, I guess, the UK market has had the reputation it's had for being a haven for income investors has been that many of the companies listed in the UK earn their earn substantial portions of their revenue overseas and indeed in overseas currencies. Oil is an example of that, but many pharma, HSBC bank. So, But to what extent really is the outlook for the FTSE 100 uh, linked to the performance and outlook of sterling in, in the years ahead? Well, it's definitely been a, a recurring theme. I'd say it was something that first became a major divider, let's say, between the FTSE 100 and the all share or even smaller parts of the market back in 2016. And it has been a recurring theme since, partly because the referendum and the time afterwards meant that sterling was perhaps a more kind of interesting or volatile currency than we'd been used to in, in the years before that. So I think that will remain a theme. Um, I think what may be interesting for those multinationals now is that it, it almost even if we, we do go back to a situation where currency volatility is a bit more elevated, it may well not be the only theme. I think for the currency itself, we will, of course, hear more about Brexit this year, but I think we'll hear more about other questions. So, for example, international comparisons of how different governments have handled the crisis or, or what hands they've been dealt. And I think that it will become more obvious as the year goes on how statistics can be compared and maybe which governments are closer to having the situation under control and which ones are further away. I think that's going to be an important differentiating theme to operate through the currency. And then the last point for multinationals, which I think is nothing to do with the currency, is I think we are going to have to quite seriously reevaluate international businesses in terms of the resilience of their supply chains, in terms of how that may play into geopolitical issues. So, for example, the US and China seem to be saying on a number of issues, look, you just have to choose who you want to be best friends with. And, And I think if you pull those things together, you can see quite a broad range of factors coming together to affect the outlook for a multinational. And that's even before, as you mentioned, we get on to the, the sector specifics of, let's say, the outlook for the oil price or, uh, or, or commodities or, or, or the healthcare sector. Thank you. Jamie, to, to what extent, when you're thinking about the UK equity portfolios that you run, to, to what extent is the outlook for sterling a factor in, in how you do things? Uh, it's not a huge factor. I don't, I don't take currency views into consideration when making investments. What I try and do is create a balance of risk within the portfolio. So I, I therefore, I like to have a nice even spread of geographic exposures across the portfolio in order so I'm not making a bet on any particular currency. And I also agree with uh, Sunil on the point about global supply chains. I think increasingly we're going to be looking at businesses in terms of how fragile they are to, to supply shocks based on where they're sourcing their, 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 particularly their goods, but I suppose services as well. And um, Andrew, as a multi-asset, multi-manager, uh, you, you, you obviously have um, exposure to funds that have themselves got global outlooks. How does the performance of Sterling impact uh, Witan clients and how does it matter to, to you as the chief executive? I think the, 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 the biggest impact it has is on the overseas assets that we hold. Because we're a global fund, we only have about just over 20% in the UK. 
And that 20% is affected by sterling. But as the other speakers were saying, there are much bigger influences at work this year, such as the impact of the, of the recession. But the, the other 75% of our assets overseas, if sterling goes down, for, for our investors, who are all nearly all UK private individuals, the value of their investment goes up, at least in sterling terms. But currency is only one of the influences on both domestic equities and international equities. So I think it's one of the reasons that private individuals diversify into global funds. But I don't think they, I mean, if you just wanted to benefit from weaker sterling, then just buy a dollar deposit. And so we're, we, we view it as one of the ingredients in determining the, the P&L for the companies that we invest in. Thank you. Um, Andrew, you mentioned that there's a number of ingredients in terms of deciding what, what you invest in. Um, another question that I'm sure is on, on the minds of many market participants at the moment is the outlook for inflation. To what extent do you think uh, UK-based clients should be worried about a sharp rise in inflation right now and what that could do to their portfolios? I, I think equity investors have little to fear Bond investors, different thing, but equity investors, clearly um, in in the near term, inflation is depressed both by the collapse in oil price and also by the weakness of economic activity. There's a lot of spare capacity, there's no wage pressure. And so in the near term, inflation is going to be certainly sub 2%, possibly sub 1%, so relatively negligible. Actually, it would be a high class problem if inflation began to pick up to two or three percent in coming years because it would indicate that there was some successful reflation and growth taking hold in the wider economy. I think that there is at least a 50 percent chance that over the next five years we'll move from being completely complacent about inflation to starting to worry that inflation is going to pick up to levels that will certainly threaten the wealth of bond investors and may threaten the weighting of the equity market. Not hyperinflation, but if we get back to four or five percent type inflation rates which we had in the 1980s that would be a major sea change and and i think would catalyze a shift from the uh, very highly rated growth part in the market of the market towards uh, some of these cyclical industrial companies and the financials and and i think the market will try and anticipate that before it happens and right this minute feels a bit early but i i would expect that sometime over the next three or four years the sort of the monotheistic uh, following of the technology stocks and the sort of highly rated growth stocks will shift to something that's a bit more balanced. And I think that could only be healthy. Thank you. Uh, Jamie, as a UK equity manager, is inflation and the inflation outlook something that you're giving a lot of thought to at the moment? Yes, it, it's always something that's quite important. If you if you do see a, an inflationary event, and, and like Andrew, I don't see that coming soon, but I, I think there's a, a material risk that it will happen sometime mid-decade, especially if some of the extraordinary government policies that have been introduced um, don't stay extraordinary and become just part of the norm. Those sorts of businesses that have benefited from declining interest rate yields presumably would be uh, under threat, while well, their, their valuations would be under threat in a situation where inflation starts going up, assuming that government or central banks are probably more, more accurate, can, uh, do not um, control the yield curve in that situation. So theoretically, higher inflation means higher interest rates. If they can continue the, the quantitative easing and continue to suppress that yield curve, then we might end up with this unusual situation where high growth expensive stocks stay expensive simply because Fixed income stays very expensive, and that, that would be a situation of sort of financial repression, whereby it, it becomes increasingly difficult to generate a real return, 
without taking excessive risk. So yes, I think inflation is very important, and I think it should change the makeup of how the market um, is constituted, particularly towards things like banks, which ought to do quite well. And, and in the Crooks UK Core Fund, we do hold quite a lot of banks, partly reflective of this of this idea that we might get inflation, and we don't want to be too exposed to the disinflationary pressures that are being uh, in place in the last 10 years. Thank you. Uh, Sunil, how, how do you view the inflation outlook and how does that fit into the asset mix in, in a multi-asset fund right now? I think the key question, and um, it's the same question being asked everywhere globally, but it may not be the same answer everywhere globally. I think with regard to the, the outlook for inflation, I, I think what it really hinges on is we obviously know that every time we've had weakness over the last 10 or 15 years in the economy, and it's been met by lower interest rates and so on. There have been concerns about that leading to inflation getting out of control, and that's not what we've seen. I think the only thing that's different this time, but it still leaves it as an open question, is obviously the very fast and very aggressive response in terms of fiscal policy and fiscal announcements. And I think that is something that's importantly different. And it it does potentially provide a way out of the sort of secular stagnation path where you can keep pushing on a string by lowering interest rates or buying bonds and supporting the supply of borrowing that way. But if the demand isn't there, not much is going to happen. And, And it does potentially provide a way to move beyond that. I think it's simply too early to say, though, whether that's going to be the case. And in the interim, I think while we're trying to understand whether fiscal policy is really getting any traction, the fact is companies remain cash flow constrained. And it's very hard in a cash flow tight environment to see companies being willing to look at increases in pricing or indeed anything other than absorbing cost shocks through margins. So you then need to look beyond that to a world where I think almost regardless of how effective fiscal policy is, potential supply uh, in the global economy will be constrained. It will be constrained by the fact that we decide we perhaps are going to prioritise resilience and robustness over efficiency, whether that be in terms of less financial leverage or in terms of less just-in-time supply chains and so on. So, so that in itself, I think, is something that potentially puts a little bit of a break on global productivity. Uh, the other point is it's not clear what international relations will look like. It does seem as though there will be some challenges to, to China's economic model coming from other uh, developed countries. We're already seeing some signs of that. We may see more, I think, once the immediate crisis has passed. So you put these things together and it says, right, the growth inflation trade-off is not going to be as good as it was. And then the question is, where exactly on that slightly less favourable growth inflation trade-off do we find ourselves? And that may well be that question of where does fiscal policy really come through? Now, for the UK, it could be a situation where you have growth that's not quite as good as it was, but inflation that is a bit higher than it was. And then I think there's a political decision, particularly for the Treasury in terms of do they want to keep the fiscal support going? There's a decision for the central bank, the Bank of England, in terms of are they willing to tolerate uh, higher inflation? I suspect the answer to both of those will be yes. But it's not necessarily uh, a situation where a return to slightly higher inflation is a first world problem, where it's necessarily a consequence of much stronger demand. It may actually be that demand doesn't have to be that much stronger in the post-crisis world to create a few shortages and a few increases in prices. Thank you. Andrew, you mentioned earlier on during this podcast that uh, your uh, weighting to UK equities has come down quite a bit in, in recent years. But have you also taken the opportunity to go further down the market cap scale? Is that something that you have, have consciously tried to do or consciously tried to avoid? What's your view on the outlook for the market below the 100? 
we haven't consciously tried to do it, but I think one of the benefits you get, I mean, and by the way, 15% or 19% or so of our benchmark is in the UK and we, we have about 26 in it. So we actually okay. are backing the UK for a relative recovery, which so far this year it's given us a bloody nose, but, but I think sure. the value has become more exceptional. And I think the government is, at the moment, fiscal policy from the government consists of throwing a load of bits of wood out for the drowning people in the economy to hold on to. But I think there will come a time when the government will be trying to get everybody to build a bridge out of those bits of wood. And if you like, a public works program, I think is likely to form part of how we come out of this recession. The attraction further down the market cap scale, which we delegate to our managers to look at, is you, you get a, a much broader range of sectors than you have in the FTSE 100. You get a, a more diversified stream of income and usually a lot, many of the companies are less well researched. So I think there is an attraction from the point of view of active managers investing in the UK that there are more opportunities. Last three or four years, that's been a disaster because Brexit has put a big risk premium on it, anything mid-cap or domestically exposed. But I think we expected this year would, would put that behind us and the, the COVID outbreak has, I think, prolonged the period of pressure on anything small and vulnerable. But look, looking forward, I think within the UK, that's where the growth is going to come from. And we're very happy that both of the UK specialist managers we have roam down at least into the mid caps. I think I'm also, for disclosure, a non-executive director of, of Diverse Income, which is a small and mid cap specialising investment trust. And one of the attractions that people are looking for in that part of the market is greater diversity of income and more growth opportunities without having to pay 30 times for them. Thank you, Andrew. Jamie, as a UK equity investor, have you been seeing increased opportunities outside the FTSE 100 in recent years? I mean, one of the stories, of course, is that while the FTSE 100 generates most of its earnings from overseas, as you go down the market cap scale, it gets more and more UK, UK focused. Is that something you view as an attraction or a detraction? I do look outside the FTSE 100 quite a lot. Really, my universe is largely FTSE 350. This is on the Crops UK quarter. When I do go down the lower market cap scale, I don't tend to go too much towards those businesses that are very UK exposed. So whilst it's true that some of the smaller businesses are more UK exposed, you can still get very large international exposure by going down the market cap scale. As I said earlier, I think international diversification is sort of one of the few freebies you get in risk management. And uh, therefore, I see it as quite an attractive thing to have a, a broad range of geographies in a, in a portfolio. Thank you all for joining me today. Tune in next week for another edition of the FT Advisor podcast.